Peter chapter 3, verse 14 to 18. Once again, the passage comes from 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 14 to 18. And our dear Reverend Nick will preach to us uh, with the title of To Him Be the Glory. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. And count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand, which, we, uh, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability. But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. morning. If we haven't had the chance to meet yet, as Pastor David has introduced, my name is Nick Walk, and I'm the youth and college pastor here at Renewal Mainline, and I hope that we'll be able to get to know each other more. If I could start that off a little bit, I want to share one of my favorite furniture stores. Not that I know that many furniture stores. If you guys know the famous Ikea, they have a restaurant, they have a display area, and you can just buy anything. And if you've ever shopped there, Apart from the maze-like structure, the thing I love most about them is that they're so easy to assemble. You don't need to know how to read. You just need to know your basic numbers. And you need to identify pictures. It's like looking at a children's picture book and yet being able to build a furniture. It's perfect for people like me. And why do I share this? Well, several years ago, I had the pleasure, let's say, of helping my former roommate an engineer, might I add, build a new bed for his fiance. And after we had spread all these parts out and we were making great, great headway in the assembly process, the unthinkable happened. As we were carefully following the instructions and we're trying to finally put the headboard with the frame together, there's this little rod. It's so small, and yet it wouldn't go between the two holes. They simply wouldn't fit together. And you think with the abilities to follow pictures like myself and his ability to be an engineer, right, that this shouldn't have happened. This shouldn't be a problem. Of course, we double-checked, we triple-checked, we quadruple-checked whether these pieces were aligned with the sockets. And again, absolutely nothing was wrong with the alignment. The frame and the, and the headboard, they were perfectly fitted together. And yet this rod wouldn't go in all the way. And so what happens when you have a pastor and an engineer in a room together and we're able to use our heads? Well, we got a hammer. Sorry. <laughs> we hit it with a wrench first, and then we finally got the hammer. We, we tried hitting it over and over again because we honestly thought that the piece, it just needed a little extra push, and finally it would fit together. And only after a long, almost an absurd amount of time had passed, did we finally notice what the actual issue was. The piece didn't go together because the headboard, it was missing the hole. 
right? The, the hole that was shown in the instructions that the piece was supposed to go into, it was lacking in the physical headboard. There was no actual way to get these two pieces together. And why do I share this? Well, it's oftentimes, this is how I feel like when I talk to many Christians about their issues with spirituality. I've gotten many questions like, Pastor, why don't I feel joy in worship? Or, Pastor, why is it so difficult to worship beyond Sunday service? You see, the heart of this question is that they're wrestling with what we call the chief end of man. Why is it so difficult to both glorify God and to enjoy Him forever? And I'm sure this is a familiar story for many of us. Have you ever experienced, we can call this a gap, between Sunday morning and the joy that you have then and your everyday joy or lack thereof? Have you ever experienced this gap between your Sunday morning worship and perhaps worship lacking in your everyday life? Or have you ever felt that everyday worship and joy lacking has now bled into your Sunday mornings? Perhaps like this stupid IKEA headboard, there is a discrepancy between the manual and reality. After all, whenever I'm asked these kinds of questions, my initial diagnosis, it's, it's always the same. I asked the individual about their regular participation in what we would call the ordinary means of grace. And what are the ordinary means of grace? Well, they're the ordinary ways in which God reveals himself to his people, to his children, and they're threefold. We have preaching, prayer, and the sacraments. And although I'd love to be able to touch upon all three this morning, we'll be focusing on just one of them, the ordinary means of grace of preaching, the preaching of the word of God. And therefore, we're going to be looking at three dimensions of the Word of God. We'll see first in verses 15 through 16, the difficulties of God's Word. Second, in verses 16 through 17, we'll see the dangers of God's Word. And finally, at the center, we'll see that verses 14 and 18 reveal us the delights of God's Word. We'll see that ultimately the issues in verses 15 through 17, the center of our passage, they find their solution as they're enclosed by it in verses 14 and verse 18. In other words, the two issues that God's word is difficult and it is dangerous, they find their solution in God's word, that God's word is delightful. Hopefully that's easy to track. God's word is difficult and dangerous, but God's word is delightful. And so let's dive into our first heading, the difficulties of God's word in verses 15 through 16, starting in verse 15. And count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him. As he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters, there are some things in them that are hard to understand. We see for one reason or another, the people of God, we struggle to simply acknowledge the Word of God is difficult. And I don't mean that the Word of God is difficult to open and read every day, nor that there are things in them that are difficult to reconcile in our minds. Yes, we experience these things, but namely, that the Word of God can be difficult to understand. And you might be thinking right now, no, I don't think that at all. I find that the Word of God is difficult. Trust me, I struggle with it. And yet, if you really believe that, why is it that we're often surprised when something doesn't make sense in Scripture? 
Or why is it that when we hear challenging things in Scripture, our faiths are shaken before we actually investigate the matter? Or if I could be a little more on the nose, why is it that when we hear difficult sermons on Scripture that we're put off by them? And I mention these things in particular because these are not new problems for the church. These problems existed before Christ's earthly ministry. It existed during his three years of ministry. And certainly it is an existing problem that continued after his ministry through his disciples till now. Notice what the Apostle Paul says, or Apostle Peter says to his readers in verses 15 through 16. What does he say about his fellow Apostle Paul? Well, first in verse 15, he mentions that Paul wrote to them. Second, in verse 16, he recognizes that Paul wrote to them multiple times. And third, also in verse 16, what Paul writes can be difficult to understand. If I were to break this down a little bit further, first, Peter, who is an apostle and an author of Scripture, he reveals that he himself finds Scripture written by his fellow apostle difficult to understand. And if we read the rest of verse 16, Right, we see that there are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. We'll talk about the ignorant and unstable a little bit later, but notice that their target is scripture. By writing as they do the other scriptures, Peter is including Paul's letters as scripture, as the infallible word of God. And this isn't just surprising to us. It's shocking to the original readers as well, who would have only known the Old Testament to be the Holy Scriptures. We see Peter's willingness then to be vulnerable, to be transparent as he confesses. Even the apostles, those who were closest to Jesus, those who were hand-picked hand and taught by Jesus, they find Scripture to be difficult at times. Not only that, Peter, he's writing these words to a people who've been hearing the difficult truths of Scripture. For example, Jesus said, I'm coming back soon. And so they keep asking, where is he? When is he coming back? Why isn't he here yet? And rather than doing the difficult task of searching Jesus' words through the apostles or looking through the Old Testament prophets, we see that they're disheartened and that their faiths have become weakened. You see, Peter, he wouldn't have mentioned here that Scripture is difficult if the people of God actually acknowledged this simple truth. And finally, remember that to the original readers, Scripture and sermons, they were synonymous. That is, the letters that they received from the apostles were both Scripture and sermons. After all, they were to be read aloud to the congregation in one sitting, as if the apostles were directly preaching to their listeners. But does that mean what we're doing this morning is wrong? And I should simply be reading to you different books of the Bible from beginning to end instead of preaching like I am now. Well, of course not. Look again with me to verses 15 through 16. It says again, And count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you, according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks to them in these matters. Notice the truth to be communicated to the readers. This is what the apostles want their readers to know. Count the patience of our Lord as salvation. And yet, notice that even this one particular truth is a repeated truth in multiple letters from Paul. 
You see, the apostles, they recognized that their responsibilities, it was twofold. First, it was to write Scripture, yes. And second, it was to unpack Scripture. This is why, although multiple letters existed at one point in the first century, not all of them were divinely preserved for the Bible. It's because God knew that both were necessary. Because even God knows that his word can be difficult. Not that God is deficient, that his ability to communicate is lacking, but that we are deficient. God knows that our ability to listen and understand is deficient. The reformer, John Calvin, he puts it best when he compares the word of God to what he calls a nanny lisping to little children. Think about it. How do we talk to newborns? We say things like goo-goo-ga-ga, peekaboo, right? Things that aren't actual words. And what are we doing? We're trying to communicate something to our children that they can't quite understand just yet. We simplify for them. Likewise, when the infinite God reveals himself through finite words, they're like the divine goo-goos and gagas. You see, although God, he's making himself more accessible through his word, it doesn't change the reality that such a great gap exists between the intellect of God and the intellect of his creation. So again, why are we surprised that, we, that the word of God is difficult to understand and that we actually need to wrestle with it? And naturally, then why are we surprised that it's actually a normal and necessary expectation for listeners to wrestle with the preaching of God's word? You see, the same message needed to be repeated and written multiple times by the apostle for the sake of their readers to understand a single point. And yet, Peter, he doesn't put the blame on Paul's difficult messages here. He challenges his listeners with another message. Is it so strange then that this pattern continues today? Perhaps we need to hear the same point multiple times, and despite knowing that it's going to be difficult to understand at times, that we come with this expectation to keep wrestling with it. And the reason for this is further fleshed out actually in the next section, as we move from the difficulties of Scripture to the dangers of Scripture. And so we turn now to see that God's Word is dangerous in verses 16 through 17. Starting with verse 16. There are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction, as they do the other scriptures. You, therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability. We see immediately in verse 16 that one natural outcome of the difficulty of God's word is that the ignorant and unstable, they twist it to their own destruction. And don't take this warning lightly. Destruction here, it's not referring to some earthly ruin or sabotage. It's talking about eternal consequences. This is the same word that Jesus and the apostles use when referring to hell and damnation. You see, sometimes our easy and natural accessibility to the Bible, it makes us forget the sheer weight of what we actually hold, what we're reading, what we're sharing with other people. 
right? Hebrews 4.12, it reminds us that the Word of God, it is living and active. It is sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. What it shows us is that the Bible is dangerous because it's a weapon that can pierce and divide a person's spirit and body, to pierce to the depths of their innermost being. You see, the Bible, it's not limited to mere pleasantries and platitudes, nor is it relegated to ancient people and only to the spiritual sphere of our lives. And I don't think I need to stress what Peter writes in verse 17. We're all familiar with how the world loves to twist God's word and attempt to make God look cruel and unloving and to make his people look foolish and backwards. Surely none of us live in such a vacuum that we're not confronted with such content, whether it's in person, whether it's online, on a regular basis. It's everywhere. It's unavoidable. So instead, let me stress the two characteristics of these lawless people. What are they like? Well, we see them in verse 16. They are ignorant and they are unstable. And so let me start with unstable, right? First, lawless people, they're unstable. You see, this isn't a question of your mentality or your character. It's a question of your vision. Whenever I see the word unstable in Scripture, it, it reminds me of a certain king in the book of Isaiah, King Ahaz in Isaiah 7. You see, as, as Ahaz, he's looking at the enemy armies that surround Jerusalem, he sees that even the northern tribes of Israel have betrayed him and are warring against him. And what does it say about his heart? His heart shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. His heart was unstable. It was fluttering like in, it was as if it was in the wind. And so what does God tell unstable Ahaz? Well, after God's declaration to defend Jerusalem, he rebukes Ahaz and he says to him, if you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. That's what it means to be unstable. Someone who is unable to see the world from God's perspective. More specifically, the unstable person is unable to see God's world interpreted through the lens of God's word. They allow God's word to be drowned out by the voices of this world. And so what they see is more important than what God actually says. And notice the danger and the transition between verse 16 through 17. It's these unstable people, these blinded people that are able to shake the faith of those who are stable. Those should, who should be living by faith and not by sight, they can be shaken by those who are blind. And you know how they do it. Well, we turn to our next characteristic. We see that these lawless people, they're also ignorant. And when you hear this word, your initial instinct, it might be to think that these people, they're uneducated or they're untrained. We're tempted to distinguish these people between either the character the categories of seminarian, layperson, smart or stupid. Older translations like the KJV or NASB, they will use words like unlearned, untaught. But that's actually a bit off the mark. Although these words, they capture the literal translation, it doesn't capture the nuance of the Greek word. 
You see, the Greek word here, amathes, it's only used once in the New Testament. However, when we go outside the New Testament, see how was it used in the ancient world? Well, extra biblical uses of this word give us a better clue. There's a written record of a man named Joseph who wanted to test which of his sons had the greatest character. And so he had each of them study under multiple teachers who were renowned for teaching young men. And afterwards he notes one thing. He says many of his sons, his sons they returned foolish and unlearned. They returned amathes. Basically what this story teaches us is that the ignorant people, it's not that they're uneducated. It's not that they're unable to learn. Rather, they're lacking in knowledge because they're resistant to learning. In other words, it's not your intelligence that defines whether you're ignorant or not. You could be the smartest person in the world and yet be ignorant because you're resistant to learning. Brothers and sisters, could this be descriptive of you? Could you be ignorant when it comes to the Word of God that you're resistant to learning it? Again, I'm not questioning your intelligence nor your capability. I'm challenging your posture when you're confronted with the Word of God. Notice the danger. The faithful are shaken by the stubbornly unstable. And notice the irony how the people of God will be pierced by a counterfeit sword made up of pieces of God's Word. You see, none of us in our professional careers would be so one-sidedly fooled by misinformation. So then, Shouldn't that be the same? Should we not have a higher standard when it comes to our spiritual profession? You see, the Word of God, it becomes dangerous the more that we're resistant to it. As we're ignorant of it and more unstable apart from it, naturally, God's Word, it becomes dangerous to us when the more we hear it and read it, but are unwilling to live according to it that we hear it constantly, daily in fact, and yet we live like lawless people, those who are ignorant, resistant to the world, those who are unstable, blinded by the world. In other words, the word of God, it becomes dangerous to people who live like the world, who stagnantly live like the world. So then, if the word of God is difficult, it is dangerous, requiring us to constantly wrestle with it, to become familiar with it, intimate with it. Where's the good news here? It may sound like all I've done so far is increase your burdens. And if I only declare the demands of God's word, it's going to diminish our desire to become diligent in it. Which is why we must conclude by reminding ourselves that the word of God truly is delightful. It's something we desire, we want every moment not just that the Word of God gives our life joy, but that soaking in the Word of God is enjoyable. That opening His Word, reading, meditating on it is a delight. And we see this in verse 14 and verse 18. Starting in verse 14. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these things, be diligent to be found by Him without spot or blemish and at peace. But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now 
into the day of eternity. Amen. We see that Peter, he begins the conclusion of his letter in verse 14 by simply reminding his readers what they're waiting for. Better yet, he reminds them who they're waiting for and that he's worth every second of waiting. It's the same reason you'd arrive at a date an hour early. But when they ask, were you waiting long? You say, I just got here. It's the same reason that parents, they stay up late waiting for their children to come back from prom or some other event, and they pretend like they had something else to do instead of waiting for them. It's the same reason you'd wait in a long line line to get into your favorite restaurant, to go into an amusement park ride, to buy a new game or a sneaker. We inherently recognize that there are things in life that are worth waiting for, that it's worth patiently waiting And we see this more clearly as Peter, he not only reminds his his readers who we're waiting for, but what to do during that time we wait. He says simply, be diligent. Do everything possible. Be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. Like a parent expecting a child would be preparing their home or a bride and groom readying themselves for their wedding day. You see, there's a desire to prepare ourselves for that day that we await. We await the day, not lazily, not waiting for it to happen, wondering when it's going to happen, but diligently pursuing so that when that day comes, right, when you give birth, when you get married, that everything happens right, that you're ready to anticipate that glorious day. We're called here to be waiting diligently without spot or blemish and at peace. You see, the first two, spot or blemish, it refers to purity. It refers to this this undividedness that we have, where at every level of our lives, whether it's bodily, spiritually, mentally, or emotionally, literally in everything that we speak, that we think, that we do, that we are pure, undivided. And this is equally summarized and actually enhanced by this phrase, at peace. To be at peace, it pushes us beyond ourselves. It's not enough for you alone to diligently be and live without spot or blemish. We must be at peace with one another. Without spot or blemish must define our community as well. After all, in a community that Peter must constantly warn against false teachers, against the ignorant and unstable, against the lawless people, the last thing that Peter wants is a division amongst the community of God. He doesn't want a witch hunt. You see, what better word to use here than peace? It's a familiar word to a Jewish context. It means shalom. It means wholeness just like purity, when everything in the world is as it should be. What we see then is that the goal was neither a witch hunt nor a spiritual superiority contest. It's a holy people seeking peace with one another to become a holy community. After all, there ought to exist a sharp contrast between those who are waiting and those who are not. Now you might still be thinking, I still haven't been doing a good job of alleviating your burdens. I'm only increasing them here. However, this is when we have to remember 
two important truths. First, that the goal for being diligent here is actually not to present ourselves as without spot or blemish and at peace. Notice that it says the goal here is to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. To be found by him in such a state. It doesn't eliminate our need to be diligent, but it reminds us that it's not about how we present ourselves, but how Christ will find us when he returns. As much as we're waiting for him, Christ is waiting to find us, to come and to get us. In other words, it's, it's how Christ sees us that's more important than even how we see ourselves. Even our diligence, it must lead us to the one whom we actually await. And this leads us to the second important truth. What we're diligently pursuing, these aren't arbitrary characteristics. Peter didn't just come up with these out of nowhere. These are loaded terms. After all, these characteristics, they invoke sacrificial imagery. If you think about the sacrifice of the Old Testament, all of them were to be spotless and unblemished. But there's none that is more immediate to our context than the description of the sacrificial Passover lamb. You see, before calling us, reminding us, commanding us to be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish, and this is at the end of his second letter, we see that Peter, he had written a previous letter. And at the beginning of his first letter, 1 Peter 1.19, he reminds us that we have been bought, we have been ransomed with the precious blood of Jesus, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. We're called to be like Jesus. You see, before calling us to be at peace with one another, he reminds us that we have peace in Christ. That's 1 Peter 5, 14, as well as all these other references to Christ's peace throughout these two letters. To put it very simply, we diligently seek nothing less than the characteristics of Christ himself. Until we're found by Christ, until he returns, what we're seeking is Christ-likeness, to be like him, so that when we're found by him, that the only thing left will be Christ and his likeness, living with him for all of eternity. And if that's the goal, that at the day of eternity, when he returns and makes all things new, that there will only be Christ and those who look like him, wouldn't you want to start that here and now? Why are we waiting? This is what we see again in Peter's rephrasing of the same conclusion in verse 18. When he says, grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. This is what he means. And notice here the particular word order. It is important. Growing in grace, it comes before growing in knowledge. We are first and foremost called to grow in the grace of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. This is the reason that the word of God can feel like a chore to us. The reason that our worship can feel dry or fickle, it's because we've forgotten the source of our zealousness. Grace, it flows downwards before it flows outwards. Diligence, it, it isn't something that we pull out of ourselves that we can achieve if we work a little bit harder. Growth is fueled by the grace of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. 
And this is the order we must get absolutely clear because we are a people who have been explicitly trained to think that knowledge is the most important thing. We like to think that if we could simply know more about Jesus, suddenly his grace would become more real in our life. We think this way for our children. We think this way and when we evangelize to other people, if only they could understand what I know, then wouldn't they believe? Wouldn't they finally believe what I believed if they only knew what I knew? But ask yourselves, is this how you truly first believed? Was it really knowing more about God, about Christ, or about faith that led you to believe? Was it not that surprising moment when you came to this realization? I don't understand everything I just heard, but man, I desperately want to know more. That's what it means to first experience the grace of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. You see, it's the grace of Christ which invokes, which stirs, which draws out our curiosity and leads us to growing in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. This isn't a declaration to simply stuff our heads about Christ on a regular basis. It's a process of experiencing Him as Lord, as our Lord, and as our Savior day by day by day. And this is true, not only in our individual relationship with Christ, grace, then knowledge. This has always been the pattern of salvation. It was true in the Old Testament when God reveals to Adam a garden before he reveals a prohibition. It's the same with Exodus. God delivers his people before he gives them the law. And it's certain the pattern that we learn from the cross. Ask yourselves, who did Christ come to save? Certainly not a people who recognize their sin and their need for a savior. After all, the apostle John, he reminds us, Jesus came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. He came to the very ones who would reject and crucify him. And the ones who finally did receive him, they were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but they had to be born of God. In other words, those who accept Christ are those who have been born again in the grace he revealed through his life, death, and resurrection. What we see then is that even having all the knowledge of the world, it will never lead us to trust in Christ. You could know everything about Christ, everything about the Bible, and that will not lead you to trust in him anymore. And on the other hand, the one who has experienced even a sliver of grace, a sliver of Christ's grace, will always be led to the knowledge of him. And it's for this reason that we say his grace is irresistible. It's because his grace enables us to recognize that he is indeed both our Lord and our Savior. And this process of growing in his grace and knowledge, it only results in one possible conclusion. To declare with the Apostle Peter and with all the saints, to him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. Do you wonder why you feel so dry in worship or that your day-to-day -day life may be so lacking of joy 
brothers and sisters, could it be because you're lacking in his grace? Could it be that you're lacking in his knowledge? Not, again, not knowledge about him, but intimate knowledge in your relationship with him. Brothers and sisters, would you check to see if your conclusion is the same as Peter's conclusion? To him be the glory. And if it's not, would you turn to him now? Would you turn to him for his grace so that you would desire knowledge of him and that you'd be able to declare with all the saints, to him be the glory. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, that you are so glorious, that you are so desirable. And we hate this part of ourselves that looks at that and says it's not for us. Truly, Lord, apart from you, there is no means to seek you, to love you, to hold you fast. And so would you help us now that we would cling to nothing else, that we would want no one else, that we would cling to your grace. And if we see it lacking in our life, that we would ask you for more because we know that you declare you give more grace. In the strong name of Christ we pray. Amen.